Hello to everybody out there. If you're tuning in for the first time, thank you and welcome. If you're returning, thank you and welcome back. As always, my name is Raul and this is Cut Talk Radio. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Sapolsky. Dr. Sapolsky is a professor of biology, neurology, and neurosurgery at Stanford. His research mainly focuses on things like neuron death, the effects of stress on the brain, and gene therapy. Dr. Sapolsky has also done great work as a neuroscientist and primatologist, spending a great deal of time with baboons in the Kenyan countryside. Lately, however, Dr. Sapolsky has taken the internet by storm with this strict stance that humans have no free will, a topic that's sure to start a debate whenever it's brought up. Dr. Sapolsky's most recent book is titled Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. In the book, Dr. Sapolsky goes one by one, tackling all the major arguments for free will and taking them out. Now, before we start the episode, I have to admit I was a bit starstruck as I am a big fan of Dr. Sapolsky and all his work. And uh, this led me to being a little bit nervous, but hopefully you guys can make the most out of this conversation and you can get something from it. Also, I forgot to change some settings on the camera, so I was only able to capture about 10 minutes of video. The other 20 minutes are just Dr. Sapolsky's video and, uh, and my audio. But if you're listening, that won't be a problem anyway. So either way, hopefully you can enjoy this episode. The episode was recorded about a month ago, but I wanted to save it for the last episode of the year, being as it's such a special guest. So here it is, Cut Talk Radio number 104 with Dr. Sapolsky. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Cut Talk Radio. If you're joining us, thank you for being here. We have a very special guest today, somebody who's been sweeping the internet, sweeping the podcast world, somebody who I've been listening to quite a bit, and um, you know, it's an honor and a pleasure. Uh, today we have Dr. Robert Sapolsky. Dr. Robert Sapolsky is a biologist who studies behavior and things like neuron death, the way the brain has, or the systems within the brain that control things like behavior. He's also done a few studies uh, in the field with baboons and things like that, and that's something we're going to try and get into today. But his reputation, I think, for the most part, is the free will killer, and so we'll get into that a little bit today. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Sapolsky, how are you doing? Okay, thanks for having me on. How do you feel? How does it feel to have that reputation as the guy that's going around on the internet killing free will? Well, um, what's pretty clear so far is I'm not doing it very effectively. Um, uh, sort of, I, I spent five years writing that book and knowing that for four and a half of it, like I was going to get grief from endless corners, and that's just what I'm getting. So, but I asked for it. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think you're doing something that is necessary in a lot of ways. Um, not for the sake of, you know, cause sometimes I watch your videos and I'll, and by the end I'm like, oh, what's the point of life, you know, but it's not, <laughs> but like, you know, that's, that's something that we can live with, I think. And, uh, Freud actually does a good job of explaining how, you know, when we don't like things, we, our brain has a, a, a defense mechanism for it. You know, there are different ways that we sort of compartmentalize things that we don't like. And I think the idea of free will is so enticing to people that that's one of the things that they'll defend with their last will, you know, their last yeah. will. <laughs> um, but I want to start with a quote because I think it's relevant and I just want to hear your, um, your feedback on it. So this is a quote by Thomas Merton. He says, We live in a society whose whole policy is to excite every nerve in the human body and keep it at the highest pitch of artificial tension. 
to strain every human desire to the limit and to create as many new desires as synthetic passions as possible. In order to cater to them with the products of our factories and printing presses and movie studios and all the rest. What do you have to say about wow. that? Fantastic quote. That's, that's amazing and very true. Um, you know, <clears throat> maybe, maybe listeners are familiar with there's this neurotransmitter dopamine, which is central to reward, pleasure, anticipation, all of that. And like we know a ton about which part of the brain releases dopamine, which has an effect here and there and does this and that. And it's basically the exact same thing in like every other species out there. But when you think about it, like look at a baboon, what are its sources of pleasure in life? Like food and sex and being able to beat up on somebody smaller than you when you're in a frustrated mood. What are our sources of pleasure? Like, you know, concerts and eye contact with somebody and winning the lottery and like an incredibly strange, like broad array of, of things there. And what that means is uh, we've got the same dopamine system as everyone else, but we've got to be able to keep readjusting it. So, okay, right now, it's going from zero to 10, whether you like the smell of that flower, but half an hour from now, it's going from zero to 10. If you won the lottery, what that means is you've got to constantly reset the system. <clears throat> so it's ready for whatever the gain is on the next input. So that's great. But what that also means is whatever was amazing, wonderful surprise yesterday is what you're going to feel like you're entitled to today and is not going to be enough tomorrow. And I think that's exactly what Merton was getting at there. Like we're, we're the species that's hungry. Um, you know, also Freud has a quote about this where he says that, you know, the illusion of a civilization or the expectation is liberty. But it, then he says that's a complete illusion because we were the most free before we had a civilization. And, you know, in creating a civilization, we gave up our liberty. And, you know, that was because something like, you know, um, uh, maybe in our brains, we evolved a system to understand that if we can just suppress our primitive, you know, uh, desires for a little bit and then group up and not be just driven by the, you know, the passions and drives, then we can have an advantage over just the people that are completely go, go, go get things. And, and so do you think that we have just kind of, built a new plateau where it's like our zero point is already again as thomas merton said at such a high tension that we almost don't even know what it's like to be at any calm state um i think that's, that's exactly the case. the case if you're like sitting here in some american city or like any of the standard cultures if you're like a hunter gatherer wandering around the kalahari desert um <laughs> in southern africa no you're not like that there's a a very simple range of pleasures. And so I think we're mostly seeing the consequences of all this stuff we have invented with westernized societies. And so is, do you see uh, when you look at society, you know, when you, from your lens, because I, I can only imagine what life looks like to you. I mean, I imagine it looks the same, but what you perceive it as is probably a little bit different, you know, say, um, 
when we look at things like economics, for example, when we look at things like politics, for example, uh, is it not just an over glorification of what we are doing? Like to say, oh yeah, it's so complex. It's politics, it's economics. But do you see, let's say that these are just systems that are already in place biologically that we have just taken and externalized in some sense? Yeah, totally great example of that in terms of politics. Okay, so one of the findings, difference between leftists and, and conservatives, obviously all sorts of different ways, we know that, blah, blah. But when you look at what the core is of, say, what conservatives get, get upset, upset about um, oh, and what liberals don't, so. is conservatives don't like new things. New things are right. threatening. New kinds of people living next door to you. New types of any things that somebody can be totally different from you and how you look and pray and eat and love and all that stuff yet be okay. They've got a very low tolerance for ambiguity, for novelty. And you can show like studies, you, you sit down a, a typical conservative, typical liberal, and you look at what sort of things make their hearts suddenly beat faster because they're feeling a little anxious. And you see that differences there. Like conservatives are more worried about purity, getting soiled, getting dirty by stuff. Okay, so philosophical. No, studies show you go into the bathrooms of people who are social conservatives versus social liberals, progressives, and on the average, conservatives have more cleaning products in their bathrooms. They're more worried about like making sure you don't get dirtied with anything or... <clears throat> infected with anything here's Here. one that's like horrifying you sit somebody down and they read a passage about like infectious diseases and dangerous new viruses coming along and all that sort of thing and conservatives afterward are likely to shift their opinion to be even more hostile to immigrants mm -hmm does nothing to progress. Oh my God, viruses, bacteria, immigrants, and it just generalizes to that. So yeah, that's exactly the case. That's got nothing, I mean, though, someone will sit there and tell you what they think about like our, our, you know, trade imbalance with Brazil or something, and that's where they get their positions from. No, they're just getting it from sort of the the makeup of their nervous system, their temperament and such. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah. So one, one way I've heard you say this is that let's say people, what we, what we're doing is where, when we say free will is we're kind of starting with the initial condition of what we consider is now. But what you have said is that, you know, you're doing today right now is the uh, consequence of the last moment of the last moment of the last moment. And so can you kind of elaborate on what you mean when you say like, because people, I think, forget a lot of those moments and therefore, you know, what yeah. sticks with them is like, no, but I made that decision and I made this, but they don't remember all the millions of moments in between that determined that. Okay, perfect. Because this is like honing in on like people who really, really believe in free will. Um, what they're really taken with is in the moment you make a decision, it just feels so much like there's a me and me just made this decision and 
like most people who think about it philosophically will say stuff, okay, so you form an intent to do something. Um, did you know what the consequences were probably going to be? Did you know that you didn't have to do that? You could have done something else entirely. And if the answer is yes, you intended all of that, that's it. Person's responsible. And sort of my starting point is that misses 99% of what's going on because you got to ask, where did that intent come from in the first place? Where did that come from? From whether you're stressed or tired or hungry in the last hour, what your hormone levels were this morning, whether in the previous year you've had a major trauma or something wonderful happened to you, what your adolescence was like, your childhood, your fetal life, because what sort of womb you wind up getting dumped into is going to have a ton to do with your brain development. And then your genes and then culture, culture like what your ancestors came up with 500 years ago and what sort of ecosystems make certain cultures more likely influences our behavior today. Whoa, how could that possibly? Obviously, because within minutes of birth, mothers mother differently, depending on what culture you're from. So where does intent come from? Everything from like a second before to hundreds and hundreds of years before, put all those pieces together and see how they all interact. And there's no room in there for some kind of magic to come in where suddenly one little like man inside your brain is completely free of all of that stuff and can make a decision like untouched by any of that. It can't work that way. Yeah, it's, an, it's more interesting to me to wonder where that idea comes from you know have you ever thought about that like where the like what is the um source that inspires somebody to take up a religious framework for the universe or to take up some philosophical point that that makes them a part you know i think nietzsche did this really good when he says that you know every philosopher makes the mistake of eventually adopting a dogma they have to they have to, they have to like you know plato came up with the pure spirit comes up with the categorical imperative it's like you kind of have to create a god you know you have to have that 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 pillar if you will within your thought process and i think for people what they want to do is say that they are the pillar of every decision they've ever made and so but i want to know because you obviously study behavior like where does this is this something that's been evolved for maximal survival i exactly it it it's very comforting like there's a purpose, you have some control, um, like you are the captain of your own fate and all of that. And like people get very freaked out when you suggest to them that there really is no free will, except something interesting is going on there. The first thing people freak out about is, oh my God, everybody's just gonna run amok because there's no responsibility or, oh my God, that means nothing can ever change. And it doesn't mean that for a second. Um, but what a certain subtype of people get totally bummed out about at that point is, oh my God, it means like all my accomplishments in life didn't count for anything. The times where I worked really hard to overcome, that wasn't, there wasn't a me in there separate of all of that. And like, a really critical thing is to remember if like you're bummed out if there's no free will 
because you're getting a great salary and maybe you don't really deserve it. <laughs> um, yeah. It means you're one of the lucky ones. For right. most people out there, um, this idea that you should be held responsible for your actions that you have no control over, for most people, it means that you're being treated crappier than average. For most people being told that actually, like I had nothing to do with that. I was whatever is in fact great news. Like you're really lucky if there being no free will makes you bummed out because your corner office or your like CEO position wasn't really earned. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, for me, it's probably a little bit easier to uh, understand what you're saying, or at least like from the behavior standpoint, because I do live in a working class community. You know, like it's really bad here. You know, we have we have the anarchy that people so badly in the mainstream claim that will fix all our problems. You know, they say, oh, just get rid of all the systems and, and humans will act like beautiful, natural beings. You know, that's the illusion that I think the popular mainstream has. But here we we have a total loss. You know, uh, people are not being held accountable for their crimes. People uh, develop systems in their mind where they justify exactly as you're saying. They don't hold themselves accountable for their actions. And the mainstream offers an excuse, right? Like, oh, you guys are being systematically oppressed. And so people just run with this and say, right, so I can go kill people. I can rob people. I can do all this stuff. And so I get to firsthand see the type of violence that humans are capable of without any structure. You know, and that goes back to what I think Freud was hinting at when he says, you know, we, we think liberty lies in civilization as a gift almost. Like, okay, we're civilized. Now we get to be super free. But it's like, no, we, we ran away from the freedom, uh, like almost over generations of evolution, realizing that we have to organize ourselves. You know, we have to uh, model behavior in some sense, you know, even though it's against our, uh, you know, like, the, again, free will is the opposite of that. Oh, I can do whatever I want and things will just work out and it will never impede on other people's freedoms. But that's just not the case, right? Um, I think yep. you... I think you see, uh, to move on to your studies with baboons, I know you did some time. Where was it in, where was the location? Uh, uh, Kenya. Kenya. Um, for 31 years, uh, I went each summer um, out to this national park in Kenya and studied baboons. It was the same guys I went back to every year. And looking at their social systems and what, things like stress had to do with their behavior and what things like stress had to do with what diseases they got and how well their bodies were working. Um, and they turned out to be a great model for humans. Like if you're a baboon, you live in these big troops, like 50 to 100 animals or so, and they're big and the males have giant canine. The lions don't mess with them much. Um, most infants survive. All the baboons have to do is spend about three hours a day to get their day's food, just out like foraging roots and fruits and things like that. What that means is they've got nine hours of free time every <laughs> single day. And what do they do with it? They devote it to making each other miserable. <laughs> All yeah. they're about is like stupid, petty social competition stuff. They're not being stressed by predators. They're being stressed by like psychological stress doled out by each other. They're a great model for us. None of us are foraging 12 hours a day out in the fields. 
instead we've got enough time to invent all these psychological stressors and baboons turned out to be a perfect like model system for that they're like great if you're if you're a baboon and you're miserable it's almost certainly because another baboon worked to make you miserable i think that kind of draws the line between where you essentially in any organism with a brain with you know those biological systems in place there's either the drive for basic necessity or mm -hmm. it's met and then as you say you begin the path of creative destruction right kind of like how can i mess with this how can i mess with that and that's interesting because you know when we look at pristine civilizations for example and i'll get right back to the baboons but you know just to kind of the earliest indications of us beginning to form civilizations it starts with say the olmec who domesticate maize they domesticate corn so what do they have now they've met their basic need they have a recurring system of food now they can settle somewhere and start to get creative in destruction and this chaos sort of it's more of how we interpret it right because we can easily say oh well they just started carving stones and doing all this stuff but what we do is we impose this sort of like as you say the magic onto it right but isn't it just chaos anyways like isn't it just some order of chaos do you think we have grown to identify that specific disorganization as organization in some sense well, that, that's perfect that you're honing in on that. Um, you know, 99% of human history was spent with hunter-gatherers and agriculture was only invented, I don't know, about 10,000 years ago or so. And what agriculture gets you is exactly as you said, it gets you surplus. So you can have some people who are artists and some people who are shamans and something and like, hooray, that's great. But what it also means is um, you can make stuff you got stuff now. And as soon as there's stuff, you got people making sure not everybody gets the same amount of stuff. And you're often running warfare really did not get invented until you started getting agricultural, like settled societies and stuff. It's like a disaster because like, as soon as there's stuff, somebody is going to want more of it and be willing to do something really aggressive to get it. And, you know, in some ways it's been downhill from there. I mean, like <laughs> yeah. potato chips are great. I mean, I love <laughs> potato chips, but the domestication of potato wasn't necessarily a great move for us as a species or things of that sort. Yeah, you create economic stuff and thus you create economic inequity. One of the interesting things in your baboon studies that I heard was that you had an instance where there was, I believe, like a hotel or something where they had thrown out a bunch of sweets or something like that. And so this is an anomaly, right? This is sort of something that wouldn't naturally happen, uh, but we did it. We introduced a, a, a big source of food. So what happened there? And how did the baboons behave? Was it something that you predicted? Or wh like, what insight did you get from watching baboons in that okay. situation? Totally, totally unpredicted. It was, you know, it was a tourist lodge out in the middle of this national park. And they were being sloppy with, like, dumping their garbage. So baboons could come and just spend all day eating the food garbage. And, you know, it wasn't great for them because it was desserts and stuff like that. And, like baboons that are putting on like abdominal weight and things like that but that was some of what was happening um but at one point uh there was an outbreak of tuberculosis because the lodge had infected meat 
and was tossing out the really like bad parts of the lungs and stuff from the cows into the dump, which the baboons were eating. And it was not just any baboons. It was only the big aggressive guys who could fight their way in for it. So all of them got tuberculosis, which kills you in like a month if you're a non-human primate. So suddenly you got this troop where there's half the number of males there used to be, and now twice as many females. And the ones who are left are the nice guys, the ones who were not aggressive, the ones who would rather sit around and socially groom each day rather than go fight for a piece of like tubercular lung over in a garbage pit or something. And what we saw was the troop transformed at that point. It became much less aggressive and much more affiliative and it was a much nicer troop to live in, especially if you were a female, because you get grief from males all the time when they're frustrated and the males were less frustrated, especially if you're a low ranking male, because you get grief from the high ranking guys all the time. Stress hormone levels were lower in these guys, all of that. So that was great. But then it took about a decade to see what was really cool. Because with baboons, if you're male, when you hit puberty, you get totally bored with everybody there. You're going to scream if you've got to see these same baboons anymore. And you pick up and you transfer. You move to a new troop, maybe the one just across the river or one 60 miles away. So at one point, like you get new males coming into the troop, these new adolescent males who grew up out in these like crappy, aggressive, normal baboon troops. And somehow you come back a year later and these guys are acting like everybody else in this troop. Somehow they were teaching new guys, we don't act like the way you came from where you came from. And what you had was a different culture in this troop and a means of passing it on from one generation to the next. And that lasted for more than 15 years with that pattern. So what do I take from it? Like, you know, you go study animal behavior and like you get to baboons and one of the things everybody tells you about baboons have the highest rates of aggression of any non-human primate. They are inevitably aggressive. They are inevitably hierarchical and male dominated and it's built into their DNA. My ass. All you needed to do was get rid of the aggressive males and you saw that a baboon social system could be completely different from anything that anyone had ever seen before. And what's the biggest punchline of that? If you sit there and you say, oh, there's all sorts of things that humans can't possibly change. It's just too in our nature. If like baboons are doing this, we sure can. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, we have like, uh, again, like when we think of it, intelligence let's say um i think people think about it like just solving problems but you as somebody who is uh trained and has studied behavior and things like that what what can you tell us about intelligence because i think when you talk about baboons and the way they adjust their culture and things like that you know this begins to sound kind of like oh well, they're acting like people in some sense you know they're acting as we would uh does, so where is the intelligence in there do you think it's in the ability to organize or is it solving problems? What is it? I think it's solving problems. Like there's all sorts of other species out there and not just like other primates that could plan for the future, 
uh, things like that. They, they will, if they know they're getting fed only every other day, they'll stockpile food between that. So that's not just like monkeys who could do that. Birds, there's certain species of birds who do that. Yeah, there's all sorts of other species out there that are smart that can foresee the future. But we're the only one who sits around and foresees the future, like I'm going to retire someday and I should save some money. Or depending on how you feel about things, uh, looking into the future, I'm going to die someday and I want to get into heaven instead of hell. Mm. Like no baboon could ever think that way. So we're, <laughs> we're just like all the other ones that, yeah, cognitive stuff, intelligence, like, yeah, we're not the only ones who could plan for the future. We plan for like, what kind of planet do we want our grandkids to inherit? So that's just like a totally different realm than any other animal out there. Right. In some sense, we're creating more problems. And then I think, and then through those problems, you get more, more uh, hypothetical solutions. Cause I think that's kind of the tone that people take when they're criticizing our society today is they're essentially coming up with many variables that could shift. Oh, if only we just change this, tweak this, it would just fix everything. We just tweak this little thing. And then you identify problems. Like, you know, again, in the political sphere and just the way societies, you know, the the uh, environmental one is a big one, right? Oh, if we just stop with our carbon emissions, for example, which, uh, you know, that would just fix everything. Um, And it seems like, you know, we're just creating more problems so that we, again, that sort of system of creative destruction, we're dist we, yeah. we're at peace and then we destroy it so that we can argue about something, you know? Yeah. In other words, if you got a complicated system, simple solutions are always virtually always going to make things much worse than before. You, because stuff doesn't work in simple ways. Like ecosystems are complicated, societies are complicated, brains are complicated. Yeah. So simple solutions often like do not work out very well. So the last question I want to ask you then. Um when it comes to, uh, and maybe you haven't thought about this, but what do you think is like, is there a, a height of civilization? Like, do you think there is some system that we could put in place to, to allow us to run more efficiently? Like, you know, may, people propose things like socialist uh, economies, things like that. Do you think such a system exists or do you think when we create the perfect system, we'll just destroy it anyways? <laughs> Well, probably that much, much easier than my pointing out what would be like a perfect, like social system society, all of that is obviously much easier to point out one that really doesn't work that way, namely like ours. What's yeah. it? The top 1% have 40% of the wealth. If you're born into poverty, there's a 99, there's a 90% chance you'll still be there as an adult. All, Yeah. This is not where, and like, God help you if you get sick because the government doesn't think keeping people healthy is like part of what they do. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's all sorts of European countries. I mean, Christ, we've got a worse uh, infant mortality rate than Cuba does, than Venezuela does, than Lebanon does. Like, we are not in terms of health stuff like way up on we're like number 40 in terms of life expectancy we've got all these resources that we 
spent on stupid stuff and is disproportionately spent by like a tiny percentage of the population. And we're like practically in the developing world in terms of like literacy rates in this country and things like that. Like it's, uh, there, there's no excuse that like we've got that here. That's pretty awful. And if you want like somebody good to compare yourself to, I don't know, those Scandinavian countries do a pretty good job of taking care of their people. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, that's one way to end, at least with some hope, right? Like there's there's things we can do. We just have to, I think one, one part is to educate ourselves in the first part, you know, like the first step is like learn what's actually going on and then you can properly address the issues. Um, But yeah, with that being said, uh, thank you, Dr. Uh, Sapolsky for giving us your time today. It was an honor. It was a pleasure. And uh, any last words you want to say before we get out of here? Uh, nah, science is cool. Science is cool. Yeah, science is cool. Study science, and maybe you might be the scientist to change the world one day. Um, but yeah, as always, guys, you know the deal. It's been another episode of Cut Talk Radio. Uh, as always, be safe, stay, take care, and peace. <laughs>